Hello, I am Professor Cecilia Bayer from the University of Oslo Faculty of Law. It is an incredible privilege and honor to be here to record this lecture on refugee and asylum law towards the centrality of human rights. So refugee and asylum law addresses the plight of persons forced to leave their homelands in search of protection. At present, displacement of persons around the world is believed to total over 80 million people, the majority of whom are unable to cross the borders of their nation states, and they're actually considered internally displaced persons. Many persons are fleeing state failure, protracted internal armed conflict or violence, terrorism, food and water insecurity, natural disasters, and other situations which do not fit neatly into the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees and its 1967 Protocol, which removed the temporal and geographic limitations of the scope of the Convention. Nevertheless, refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, and displaced persons are all entitled to protection according to human rights instruments. Hence, the relevant normative legal framework is actually pluralistic. This lecture will give a general overview of the scope of the definition of a refugee according to the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, while highlighting the dilemmas in its actual application. This is followed by a description of the key challenges that reveal dysfunction of the refugee system due to state practice that fails to provide durable solutions for refugees. It concludes by underscoring the need to rearticulate a solidarity perspective based on human rights as being promoted by human rights courts and commissions. So the first part will look at the refugee definition. Now, a question may arise as to whether the definition of a refugee is of epistemic design, resulting in the exclusion of many who lack protection of their home states. The 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees defines a refugee as someone who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a political, particular social group or a political opinion is outside of the country of his nationality and is unable or owing to such fear is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country or who not having a nationality and being outside of the country of former habitual residence as a result of such events is unable or owing to such fear is unwilling to return to it. So let's look specifically at the term of well-founded fear. The requirement of well-founded fear is evaluated pursuant to subjective and objective elements. Now subjective narratives may be impacted by cultural factors, language, education, age, gender, or the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder. And this may affect the clarity or coherence of the narrative. It can produce gaps and inconsistencies. Refugees often may make choices 
that are contradictory. And this is contradictory to their subjective fear, and this may be due to a variety of reasons, including the fact that individuals have different levels of what we call risk tolerance. They may have different levels of attachment to their homes. They may have uh, varying levels of faith in the protection from God. And they actually may fear losing their social status or economic position through migration. So with respect to the objective prong, it may be difficult to obtain country information if there's a lack of access of NGOs to um, territories so they can't write the reports. Um, also, you may have reports that are written by state institutions, often ministries of foreign affairs uh, will investigate, and these may be have selective quotations or contain biases. So you have a lack of transparency as to the sources of information being applied in these cases. Now, uh, it's important to recall that refugee status may be granted due to the weight of one element, either subjective or objective prong, in spite of the failings regarding the other element, because we apply something called the principle of the benefit of the doubt to the applicant. And let's move on to the next uh, criteria, and that is the concept of persecution. Now, what's interesting is that the persecution element is actually undefined within the 1951 Convention. And this may be due to the unending creativity of human beings to submit each other to cruelty. It is often measured by the identification of human rights, which are at risk of violation. And this can range all the way from the right uh, to life to denial of right of access of education um, or health care in events of uh, discrimination. Decision makers will analyze the severity of the type of violation or the cumulative impact of several violations, as well as measuring the impact of a derogation of a right pursuant to its duration, scope, or its discriminatory application. Now, persecution may involve physical or psychological violence, and it also can appear as structural violence in the dysfunction of the state. This can include the judiciary and the police. And it also may take gender-specific and child-specific forms, such as female genital mutilation or child recruitment. Now, the essential understanding is that there is an identification of what we call a serious harm together with a failure by the state to provide protection. Where the state fails to provide adequate and effective protection to persecution, sometimes due to discrimination or in consequence of what we call democratic dysfunction, evidenced by a lack of separation of powers, this impedes access to justice at the national level. And thus there is a need for surrogate protection by the international community. It's important to note that some national jurisdictions only recognize the state as the persecutor. And this is very detrimental because the trend in persecution is the participation of non-state actors, such as gang members, traffickers, and even family members in domestic violence cases. Persecution can occur in the private home, and this is addressed further in the second lecture of this series. Now we'll move on to nexus.
1951 convention requires the establishment of a nexus between the risk of persecution and four grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. These protection categories often intersect with each other, as well as with mixed motives or non-convention grounds, such as criminal interest in financial grain. The existence of mixed motive persecution is not enough to disqualify the recognition of the convention-related ground. The nexus may be based on the reason for the infliction of the threat of harm or the reason for the withdrawal of the protection by the country of origin, or the reason contributing to the applicant's exposure for the risk of persecution. It should be noted that the intent-based test for establishing nexus is totally inadequate for those who are facing risk of serious violations of freedom of religion and belief. Rather, we should use instead a test that takes into it account the effect of a particular act in line with international standards. For example, a conscientious objector who alleges that his religion prohibits him from participating in violence would claim violation of his right to conscience or religion by the application of a draft law, and this is in spite of the fact that the draft law may be neutral on its face. If we move on, the protection category of race may be interpreted by referring to Article 1 of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. This addresses discrimination and exclusion, and I quote, based on race, color, descent, or national or ethnic origin, which has the purpose or effect of nullifying or impairing that recognition, enjoyment, or exercise on an equal footing of human rights and functional freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural, or any other field of public life. So this is a holistic reference to socioeconomic rights in addition to political rights. And it's a signal that structural violence in the form of denial of access to institutions or public goods may be acute for persons of different ethnicities. So race often overlaps with religion and nationality, resulting in an opaque structure of intersectoral discrimination within administrative processing that requires unpacking. If we move on to the protection category of nationality, it's important to note that it's not the same as citizenship. It applies to membership in an ethnic, cultural, and or linguistic group often claiming minority or indigenous status, and it intersects with race, religion, and political opinion. You may make reference to Article 27 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which recognizes the right of minorities to enjoy their own culture, practice their religion, and use their language. Furthermore, ILO Convention 169 identifies binding obligations towards indigenous people, including respect for their property rights, and hence a right not to be displaced. National groups are also subject to persecution due to the counter-terrorist, separatist, and extremist focus of the international community. So it's important to keep this in mind.
If we move on to the protection category of religion, this may be interpreted by reference to the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, Article 18. It states that it includes the protection of thought and conscience and allows choice of belief, and I quote, as well as freedom to either individually or in community with others and in public or in private to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. Persons may be persecuted through prohibition of their ability to practice their religion or participate as members. Problems arise in case processing due to biases as to what constitutes a good religion as opposed to a bad religion, as well as the focus on tangible evidence of practical behavior, such as one's dress or their food that they eat, as opposed to intangible beliefs about the purpose of life. The association of religion with a particular ethnic group raises the risk of persecution due to the existence of religious and national political parties, as well as interreligious societal violence. Now, the most flexible category that has evolved with the passage of time is that of membership in a particular social group. According to the UNHCR, and I quote, a particular social group is a group of persons who share a common characteristic other than the, than the risk of being persecuted or who are perceived as a group by society. The characteristic will often be one which is innate, unchangeable, or which is otherwise fundamental to identity, conscience, or the exercise of one's human rights. The external social perception approach identifies a common characteristic which sets apart the group from society, such as gender or sexuality, or one's family or tribe. The members of the group need not know each other, for example, women, but they share a common characteristic. The unchangeable characteristic may apply to members uh, of a police or an army unit who will always be identified for their participation in these institutions. Persons belonging to human rights organizations or journalists may be classified as being able to claim a right to exercise of freedom of expression and not be required to be oppressed in their actions. Examples of characteristics of a particular social group have included family, occupational groups or past experiences, including um, the army and the police officers that I mentioned, but also deserters, child soldiers, and trafficked persons, trade unions, human rights defenders. And this is the category that's been used to protect LBGTT persons who have been targeted by state or non-state actors due to their gender identity and non-conformance with social or religious mores. LBGT persons are not expected to conceal their identities in order to avoid persecution because that would be considered to violate their right to human dignity. It is noteworthy that some jurisdictions have added the category of gender identity or women as part of the protection grounds relevant to persecution. And the second lecture addresses the gender-related claims separately. Now, regarding children, as Jason Popjoy describes, they can be considered a social group at risk of persecution, such as abandoned children or children of widowed mothers or girls at risk of female genital mutilation, 
or targeted for past actions, such as the child soldiers or child prostitutes. And the final category is political opinion. This is derived from freedom of expression according to Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And this would include seeking, receiving, and imparting ideas orally, in writing, print, through art, or media across borders. Look how incredibly uh, prescient the drafters of this convention were. It's also linked to the freedom of assembly and association. Now, these rights are considered to be the core of the democratic framework, and they are currently also subject to oppression in the name of counterterrorism, separatism, and uh, counter-extremism policies that wrongly identify human rights defenders as, or persons denouncing corruption, uh, as well as environmental activists, trade union representatives, and those advocating respect for indigenous territorial rights. Um, that are violated by mining interests and other uh, natural resource extraction interests. The category of political opinion would apply to persons whose political opinions are imputed to them or are singled out for their neutrality. Soldiers who declare conscientious objection to participating in wars, both alleging violation of use in bello and use ad bellum, seek asylum based on their claim of persecution due to their political opinion. And decision-makers grapple with the notions of absolute and selective objection. And there's a need to recognize a humanistic orientation that reflects moral considerations related to freedom of conscience. And now we will discuss the core uh, protection in refugee law, which is the principle of non-refoulement. Um, this is contained in Article 33 of the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees. And I quote, no contracting state shall expel or return refoule, a refugee, in any manner whatsoever to the frontiers of territories where his life or freedom would be threatened on account of his race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. Now, according to Lauder Pact in Bethlehem, non-refoulement applies to all states and entities or persons exercising governmental authority. It is considered to be established as customary law. Catherine Costello and Michelle Foster opine that it enjoys the status of peremptory international law and hence would apply to non-signatory states of the 1951 convention. Now, from the perspective of a combined refugee law and human rights-based approach, the guarantee of non-refoulement would apply both within and outside of the territory. Lauder Pact and Bethlehem explain the scope of non-refoulement as precluding acts, including non-admittance at the frontier, that would expose the refugee to either, number one, a threat to life or freedom on account of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. Number two, a real risk of persecution or other pertinent that threat, including torture, and this is derived from the European Convention on Human Rights. Or number three, a threat to life, physical integrity, or liberty, and this is derived from the American Convention on Human Rights the Cartagena Declaration and the OAU Refugee Convention, as well as the Asian-African Refugee Principles. 
Please note that national laws may create secondary humanitarian protection categories based on this non-refoulement standard. And these cases may facilitate protection to those not meeting the actual definition of the refugee under the 1951 convention, but who are facing a real risk of threat to life or freedom or risk of torture, according to Article 3 of the UN Convention Against Torture. Now, limitations may arise in cases in which national practice does not recognize the threat of torture by non-state actors. This often affects women who are subject to domestic violence or femicide, as well as persons targeted by criminal gangs. Now, Lauder Pact and Bethlehem state that the non-refoulement principle is all-encompassing as it precludes, one, chain refoulement through first country of arrival, safe third country, safe country of origin policies. Second, indirect refoulement, such as interdiction at sea. And third, non-admittance at the frontier, including the construction of the border fences and the walls that we see uh, being pursued at present. Nonetheless, at present, every one of these forms of refoulement have become normalized in practice in the name of security. Moreover, governments are instrumentalizing asylum seekers by promoting their displacement to borders and prompting international conflicts. Hence, there's a genuine risk that the international community is also facing the end of respect for the principle of non-refoulement in addition to the alleged end of the right to seek asylum. So let's look specifically at the exception to non-refoulement. The non-refoulement uh, provision is not supposed to be made available to persons to whom there are reasonable grounds for regarding as a danger to the security of the country in which he is. And this usually refers to persons who have committed criminal acts after their arrival in the host country or if he has been convicted by a final judgment of a particularly serious crime. Now, when we're considering the exception to the non-refoulement principle, we have to consider the proportionality of the removal decision itself. And this requires evaluating the seriousness of the danger posed to the security of the country, as well as the likelihood of that danger being realized and its imminence and whether the danger to security would actually be eliminated by the removal of the person. Yet, these persons would still be protected by human rights conventions, and this prohibits uh, sending persons to places in which they would be subjected to a risk of torture. Hence, states may be required to maintain the person within their own jurisdiction, although there are cases of transfer to third countries which raise additional protection issues. Now, we contrast that exception to non-refoulement with uh, what's called the exclusion clauses, so we'll look specifically at this now. The 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees includes categories for exclusion from the refugee definition in Article 1F. If there are serious reasons, and this is a standard of proof, for considering that A, he has committed a crime against peace, such as waging an aggressive war or violating territorial integrity with armed forces. This is usual a political leader or a military leader, or a war crime. This can apply to a regular soldier, or a crime against humanity, usually applied to leadership. B, 
he has committed a serious non-political crime outside the country of refuge prior to his admission to that country as a refugee, or C, he has been guilty of acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. Now, the international crimes relate to those listed within the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols. This includes customary law, among other instruments addressing atrocity crimes. Furthermore, genocide, hijacking, hostage-taking, offenses against diplomats, they are not considered political offenses. At present, acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the UN applies to terrorist crimes. Now, terrorist crimes may also be considered war crimes if they're conducted within a non-international armed conflict and violate norms such as distinction and proportionality. Although the majority of terrorist acts have no connection uh, whatsoever to refugees, they themselves may be victims of terrorism. States are actually focusing on strengthening screening mechanisms to identify radicalization and exposure to violent extremism in the refugee camps or detention and reception centers. States and international organizations have created exclusion units that focus on the processing of those cases. Issues of transparency, due process, uh, in particular access of refugees to the evidence at the foundation of the serious reasons burden of proof uh, standard can be problematic uh, in practice. So assessment of exclusion of persons involved in armed groups, including paramilitary and guerrilla groups, as well as secret police and army units, this should include evaluations of complicity and association. And it measures the degree of responsibility or active association of the refugee with the crime. Then studying the impact of duress superior orders, necessity, lack of awareness of the criminal nature of the act, the ranks, such as a senior official who holds collective responsibility for actions versus a regular soldier who has less scope of information and less possibility for autonomous action and choice. We also look at the age and the intelligence and the education of the person uh, we are assessing. Decision makers will uh, assess the nature of the organization because some are more brutal than others, the method of recruitment, whether it was voluntary or coerced, and the duration of the time that the person was within the organization. We also look at whether the person had a passive or an active role. We look at the nature of the warfare and we uh, assess whether there were actual opportunities for the person to leave. We then look at the severity of the penalties for disobedience and the application of amnesties or pardons to expiate the crimes. These are very, very complex cases. In some cases, mere membership in a notorious or brutal organization known for committing violations may be sufficient for exclusion. The decision maker would have to analyze whether the applicant voluntarily chose to join this type of group. Now, states have an obligation to screen asylum seekers for involvement in terrorist acts, and this is pursuant to the UN counterterrorist framework, including Security Council Resolution 1373, 
which uh, sets forth the standard to deny safe haven to those who finance, plan, support, or commit terrorist acts. There has been a tendency to conduct exclusion assessments before inclusion assessments, in spite of this being contrary to UNHCR recommendations. And this is usually explained as being part of the prevention strategy to enable police to monitor persons of concern who are under refugee status determination processing, and this can be very lengthy and subject to time delays. So UNHCR uh, actually recommends that persons subject to exclusion be given a proportionality evaluation in relation to the impact of exclusion in comparison to the alleged crime. Regarding violence conducted as part of a legitimate uh, endeavor for self-determination, the assessment should assess the proportionality of the actions, the harm inflicted, and their link to genuine political motives. Now, this issue is very, very contentious because of the identification of autonomy movements uh, with illegitimate separatist or extremist aims. Hence, there's often disagreement within the international community as to how to characterize these groups. Now, serious non-political crimes are usually similar to crimes within national penal codes, such as armed robbery, possession of large quantities of narcotics for distribution, homicide, rape, arson, etc. Decision makers look at the methods used and proportionality, as well as mitigating factors or defenses, such as self-defense or the fact that the person has already served a sentence for the crime. So it's important to remember that persons subject to exclusion remain protected by human rights law, so they may not be returned to a place where there's a real risk of torture, arbitrary detention, or lack of due process. Prosecution in the country may be problematic because the evidence may be in another country, and the cost of prosecution may be very high, while extradition may also be unfeasible due to COVID restrictions, for example, and other practical uh, problems. In such cases, uh, excluded refugees may be left lacking status and documentation, and this is a permanent state of incertitude. Another category is that of cessation clauses. UNHCR says that refugee protection is intended to be transitory, as protection needs may change due to a fundamental shift in the country of origin. Cessation is a, a process for withdrawal of refugee status according to Article 1C of the 1951 Convention. And this occurs if he has reavailed himself of the protection of the country of nationality or the circumstances in the country have changed that remove the risk of persecution. This is very different from uh, cancellation of status. This is applied when refugees have misrepresented material facts that grounded their protection claim. Now, the voluntary reavailment of the protection of the country of nationality does not refer to mere presence in the home country. It, what it requires is a conscious, voluntary act indicating a normalization of the relationship between the state and the individual. The change in the country must be fundamental, durable, and effective. There may be circumstances that requires a person to return, and what we often see is they want to visit a sick parent 
um, or maybe they need to file for divorce. And those kind of actions are insufficient to determine changed circumstances. And this is in opposition to people who pursue lucrative permanent business opportunities, such as running taxi services or other business um, uh, uh, interests in the country of origin. So cessation should be applied very cautiously. And you have to um, assess the impact of rupturing family or community ties. You have to consider the education or employment career of the refugee that would be damaged and the impact upon return that may worsen an internal displacement situation or result in political tensions. Factors included in cessation determination include transition to independent statehood, democracy, durable reconciliation, resolution of internal conflicts, restoration of the rule of law, the issue uh, of amnesties, and the dismantling of oppressive security services and laws. Decision makers are expected to conduct an assessment of the durability of legal and political changes, as well as the potential for backlash or discrimination against returning refugees. This is particularly important in cases in which peace agreements have solidified power structures that maintain hierarchical networks impacting access to justice, education, healthcare, or development assistance. UNHCR notes the failure to accomplish major aspects of a peace process, such as the restoration of land and property rights, may constitute a source of tension, preventing full re reconciliation. Economic and social stability have relevance insofar as serious instability in the economic or social situation could generate further political unrest. The determination of safety and a finding of sea circumstances should be holistic and not at all partial or formalistic. Now, there is an exception to cessation, and this refers to what we call compelling reasons. These compelling reasons arise out of a previous persecution. They are applied to victims of atrocious persecution. This would include sexual violence, encampment, and severe trauma. These persons will never, ever be able to have a normalized relationship to their government. These ties have permanently been broken. In addition, it's necessary to consider the special situation of children who may have spent the majority of their lives in a host country and may suffer psychological and emotional trauma, leaving their schools, their friends, their culture, and the language of the host country that have formed a large part of their identity. These children may not have been given a chance to present their views on cessation due to primary attention being placed on the parents. Hence, decision makers should ensure that they're given a chance to present their perspectives. And in the next section now, we'll look at the cost of seeking asylum. So ICJ Judge Cansado Trindade said that asylum was an element of guaranteeing a person's right to peace. However, the journey taken by asylum seekers is often marked by violence, hunger, thirst, and insecurity. Challenges to the institution of asylum include the securitization of borders on land and at sea, resulting in pushbacks, that risk the lives of asylum seekers. 
Refugees often remain in neighboring countries, which are developing countries, several of which have not ratified the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees. Hence, it's human rights law that applies, and countries um, are often identified as either being countries of origin, transit, or destination. However, there are many that have multiple identities, as their own population may flee abroad while asylum seekers from neighboring countries enter in transit or as a destination. Refugees resort to fleeing across the sea. Now, refugees who attempt asylum by traveling by sea are often subject to interception by naval or coast guard personnel who are tasked with rescuing asylum seekers who are in precarious boats. And this is pursuant to UNCLOS, SOLAS, and SAR conventions, where while coastal states are expected to grant disembarkation in a place of safety and access to procedures to process asylum claims. What is contentious is that the responsibility uh, for resettlement is very tricky. Flag states and coastal states often disagree on the shared responsibility. And this impedes facilitation of disembarkation. In practice, there are violations of non-refoulement as well as refusal to permit disembarkation in the nearest port, port of call. So this results in problematic processing on board ships as well as detention of asylum seekers in offshore processing centers, which are subject to procedural and substantive human rights violations. This includes denial of access to legal aid, a lack of medical assistance, uh, to actual violence. Now, many destination states require visas for entry um, or apply carrier sanctions to airlines and ships, thereby restricting the right to seek asylum. Moreover, those who do manage to cross borders may be subject to smuggling or trafficking rings. This ranges from human trafficking to actual trafficking of their organs. And this uh, means that we're embarking on a passage of exploitation and violations, including crimes such as forced prostitution or forced labor, thereby requiring protection, and in particular, protection from reprisals against them should they give testimony against their abusers. Hence, refugees risk crossing from the humanitarian regime to another which is linked to transnational criminal law, including the UN Convention on Transnational Organized Crime and its protocols on smuggling of migrants and trafficking in persons, thus rendering their status opaque, even though they're not supposed to be prosecuted or punished under either regime, and they are supposed to be given access to file asylum claims. Now we'll take up the issue of crimmigration. There is a prevalence of xenophobic narratives within the media and among political actors that misconstrue, misconstrue refugees as potential terrorists, criminals, or economic migrants. Now, this has resulted in the increased use of detention, deportation, with reentry ban of refugees who are penalized from having uh, entered illegally without visas or proper documentation in direct contradiction of Article 31 of the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, which calls for non-penalization of irregular entry, provided that they have come directly from a territory in which their life or freedom was threatened, 
and that they present themselves to authorities without delay and show good cause for irregular entry. This trend has been characterized by criminologists as criminalization, in which state actors, private detention and transportation companies, as well as international organizations, lack transparency and accountability in their processing of asylum seekers, often through expedited procedures, which are targeting particular nationalities, deny legal aid, and include due process violations, including deportation prior to appeal, as well as extraterritorial processing. States also demand proof of financial capacity for recognition of the right to enjoy family unity. And this isolates vulnerable refugees who are stymied by discriminatory attitudes that may limit their employment opportunities within host states. If we look at urbanization, the majority of refugees disappear within a sea of urbanization in cities and their outskirts where they lack documentation and are subject to exploitation and work, and this includes the risk of trafficking. They're also discriminated you know, when seeking housing. They lack legal aid, and they're subject to abuse by police. Their actual source of protection may be faith-based institutions or NGOs. The second phenomenon is warehousing. Refugees are warehoused or contained within refugee camps, which may shelter them, but also expose them to a lack of food, clean water, medicine, sanitation, as well as a high risk of violence, including sexual violence and a loss of life. They may be subject to forced recruitment as well. And this has resulted in the phenomenon of forever temporary existence lasting an average of over 20 years. There is a complex web of different international organizations and NGOs that share responsibilities with host states without a clear transparent system of accountability in cases of negligence or violation of human rights. So we think about the next category of return. It's estimated that resettlement of refugees to the north is limited to only 1% of refugees. Hence, it's illusory as a durable solution. Those who are resettled increasingly find themselves subject to proceedings ending their period of protection and returning them to the country of origin. The primary solution to refugees is ironically return to their homeland. When refugees finally are processed, they must surmount three barriers which are not at all articulated in the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, but today may be considered key mechanism by which states authorize return. The first is the safe third country, first country of asylum determination for inadmissibility. The second is the assessment for credibility. And the third is the evaluation of the reasonable possibility of an internal flight alternative. So, the application of a safe third country, first country of asylum determination enables states to send refugees and asylum seekers to other countries where the applicant has stayed or traveled and had the opportunity to request effective protection. States consider transit or stay to form a sufficient connection, even in cases where a person was subject to smuggling. 
and states are to ensure that there's no risk of threat to life or refoulement to a safe third country, first country of asylum, as well as a real opportunity to process the refugee status determination. There's often a use of a bilateral or regional agreement, which may include development aid for the receiving country. There's a risk of delays in processing as states may decline to receive asylum seekers in spite of formal agreements, as well as substantive violations in detention and reception centers, thereby preventing the attainment of a durable solution. And this permanent cycle of transit pays little heed to the choice of the asylum seeker or um, even in reference to the nationality of the asylum seeker. The next category of credibility um, is very important because immigration caseworkers are often instructed to focus on credibility assessments that are subject to cultural miscommunication or what we call credibility fatigue, emotional detachment by the caseworkers, and uh, the fact that caseworkers themselves are subject to vicarious trauma, which negatively impacts the due process of the asylum seeker. For many refugees, they never make it past this hurdle, in spite of them suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or rape trauma syndrome that affect their credibility. Furthermore, refugees often lack the documentation to buttress their testimony, hence the determination of credibility runs a risk of formalistic assessments. And this is very problematic when asylum seekers use false documents due to visa restrictions or fear of identification by persecutory agents in the country of origin. States increasingly use controversial age testing, language testing, and automated decision-making to disqualify identity and deny asylum, as well as limit access to housing, education, or healthcare. And the final category is the internal flight alternative. This is now widespread. It is a policy that concludes that persons should return to their home countries to seek protection within a particular part of the nation, as refugee protection is considered surrogate protection to that of the country of origin. Now, this concept should never be applied in cases in which the state is the persecutor. Nevertheless, in practice, it is widely applied and can be considered a factor in the rising problem of internal displacement, currently ca calculated at 55 million people. Decision makers are expected to assess whether the use of an internal flight alternative would be reasonable. Can the applicant actually access practically, safely, and legally the place of relocation? Now, there may be geographic barriers like mountains or rivers. There may be limitations on access to education or housing or jobs due to ethnic discrimination or gender stereotyping or ongoing violence that would limit access to the area or the viability of attaining durable solutions and the maintenance of dignity. It really is necessary to take into account the particular protection needs of women and that of children, including adolescents, that cannot be placed in illusory or unpredictable situations. It's important to take into account the best interests of the child, uh, who may be at risk of particular threats such as forced recruitment, labor exploitation, forced early marriage, or denial of education or health care. Now let's take into account how do we look beyond the 1951 convention. 
What about climate change migration? Now, the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights identifies four categories of climate-related displacement. Uh, first, weather-related dis disasters, sudden events. Second, gradual environmental deterioration and slow onset disasters. Uh, third, increased disaster risk and relocation of people from high-risk zones. And finally, social upheaval and violence attributable to climate change-related factors. Now, states often provide what was called temporary protection after natural disasters, such as floods and earthquakes. The gradual effects of climate change, such as desiccation of rivers, resulting in a lack of availability of food or water, don't fit into the refugee definition paradigm unless the home state is discriminatory in its provision of assistance to victims of climate change or natural disasters. The international community addressed the issue in the Global Migration Compact. This upholds temporary protection approaches in which permanent relocation is only available to those facing a non-refoulement situation involving the threat to the right to life, as held by the UN Human Rights Committee in the Taichiota case from 2020. Now, Samudu Atapu and Jane McAdam point out that states are applying proactive planned relocation adaptation approaches to move persons that are at risk of displacement on account of climate change related disasters ahead of time. Hence, the approach to displacement is altered to provide preventive oriented protection. And similarly, some regions are embarking on strategies to address root causes of migration this requires attention to strengthening state institutions to support the rule of law, to diminish corruption, to support equality and non-discrimination, as well as tackling broad issues like poverty, food and water insecurity, terrorism, climate change, and development issues. All of these are prevention approaches which indicate a shift from the traditional approach to force migration as a humanitarian reactive system to one um, that because we notice the dysfunction um, due to the evolution of temporary measures, moving into the recognition of protracted situations um, that violate human dignity and fail to provide durable solutions. Hence, we, moved, we needed to move in the direction of prevention, long-term assessments. And um, it should be noted that there are pluralistic approaches to defining refugees because asylum is often contained within national constitutions. And these instruments, all of them, uh, reflect the history and the contextual background of each nation. For example, the provision of asylum to peace activists or those acting in pursuit of freedom. And second, there are national uh, statutory legislation examples that may incorporate the definition of a refugee contained within the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees but also definitions contained within regional instruments, such as the 1984 Cartagena Declaration, which includes, and I quote, persons who have fled their country because their lives, safety, or freedom have been threatened by generalized violence, foreign aggression, internal conflicts, massive violation of human rights, or other circumstances which have seriously disturbed public order or the OAU Convention governing specific aspects of refugee problems in Africa, which sets forth, and I quote, every person who owing to external aggression, occupation, foreign domination, 
or events seriously disturbing public order in either part or the whole of his country of origin or nationality is compelled to leave his place of habitual re residence in order to seek refuge in another place outside his country of origin or nationality. And these broader definitions have enabled these regions to show hospitality and to offer protection to asylum seekers at a time in which the North has shut its borders due to COVID pandemics and is growing uh, antipathy towards asylum seekers. So in conclusion, we're gonna move towards uh, recognizing the centrality of human rights. The declaration of the end of the right to seek asylum was due to the closing of borders on account of the COVID pandemic and the emergence of the trend within media and political discourses to call asylum seekers and refugees migrants, thereby removing them from the scope of the 1951 convention. However, some states have demonstrated significant solidarity in providing asylum to those fleeing state failure, natural disasters, and other calamities, even offering nationality to babies born to refugees and migrants in host countries, thereby offering a model of solidarity to possibly launch a new epoch of protection in the post-pandemic era. Some scholars argue that the lack of an international refugee law court is a factor in the lack of compliance with the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees. However, because refugees are human beings, the international human rights courts have become engaged in defining the scope of asylum, non-refoulement, and other guarantees. For example, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights has issued advisory opinions applicable to migrants and child migrants, um, declaring the right to seek and be granted asylum, non-discrimination, humane treatment, the right to counsel, the right to family unity, and the right of family members to receive asylum, among other rights, including the right of non-refoulement of all migrants facing the threat to life safety or freedom, not just refugees. Similarly, the European Court of Human Rights has issued important judgments denouncing pushbacks at sea, return to a situation of generalized violence and internal displacement, as well as the risk of sexual violence as a bar to return. The Court of Justice of the EU has issued decisions on access to fair procedures and effective remedies, reception conditions, application of the best interests of the child standard, and also recognizing the right of family reunification. The African Commission of Human Rights has held a state accountable for discrimination against refugees. The Inter-American Commission of Human Rights has condemned xenophobic acts of violence, the use of force, and the deportation of migrants, as well as publishing reports on due process in refugee status determination, also issuing protection measures on behalf of migrant children. So the orientation of human rights courts and commissions appears to support a solidarity approach towards recognizing protection obligations for refugees and migrants, and the engagement of civil society groups to bring cases and to seek to counter xenophobic narratives that dominate the media and politics should increase the focus on promoting the recognition of the common humanity of refugees and migrants. Hence, even if the international community desists from using the term refugee in favor of the term migrant, as both are humans, they are protected by the human rights regime, which includes protection against refoulement, 
and provides hope for the aspiration of realizing the right to recognition of human dignity and the right to aspire for peace in the form of a durable solution. Refugee and asylum law will continue to evolve, merging with human rights-based approaches to assist the design of flexible strategies to address forced migration in a new epoch.